Good morning. I count it a great blessing to be here with you today to open God's Word. It's good to see all of you. We've missed you, and we hope to get to talk with you and see you more later today. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be looking at this whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and, all, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word, Lord, that you would bless our eyes and our ears and that you would open our hearts, Lord, to the truths of your word. Lord, I I pray that you would give us all sound minds and sober minds to hear what your word has to say to us, Lord, and that your spirit would be our teacher, 
and would apply these things to our hearts. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us have heard the name William Tyndale, that great early reformer of the church. But something many of us don't know is that next to Shakespeare, he's probably responsible for more of the words that we use commonly in English than anybody else. And that despite very appalling circumstances. Those circumstances included the fact that the English authorities banned all translation of the Bible into English. They had done so, in fact, since 1408, after the death of Wycliffe, another early reformer. In the late 1520s, English church authorities started burning what they regarded as heretical books, including early versions of Tyndale's New Testament in English. Then they started to burn leaders of the reform movement, such as Thomas Brynion and John Frith. Tyndale had already fled to the continent in 1524, settling eventually in Antwerp. Even so, Thomas More, the Lord Chancellor of the time, kept a ferocious attack upon him. The blessing of exile for Tyndale was that he had access to the Hebrew texts and learning and can translate with some freedom. And who was this remarkable man? Well, he was born around 1494 to a relatively well-to-do family in Gloucestershire with good connections to the wool trade. William Tyndale clearly benefited from a good early education. He went to Oxford University where he studied theology and learned both Latin and Greek. He eventually became a priest and he was evidently horrified at the lack of knowledge of the scriptures by his fellow priests. He would have been well aware of Erasmus working in Cambridge at the time, but it's not clear that the two ever met. The publication of Erasmus' Greek New Testament in 1516 was a highly significant moment for Bible translation. And quite how Tyndale learnt Hebrew and quite how he turned it into such an astute master of the English language remains a matter of speculation. He published a translation of the New Testament in 1526 and a revision in 1534. He published the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, in 1530. He clearly translated other Old Testament books. Nearly two-thirds of the Old Testament he translated in the midst of this horrible persecution. But it's not certain exactly what he translated and what others, such as Miles Coverdale, completed after his death. Tyndale should have been safe in Antwerp, but he was betrayed to the imperial authorities in Brussels by an unscrupulous fellow Englishman. After more than 400 days in prison, and despite an attempt by Thomas Cromwell to have him released, he was eventually condemned as a heretic. He was strangled, and then his body was burned. Fox's Book of Martyrs recounts his final words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. In 1539, Henry VIII authorized and funded the Great Bible, which was basically Tyndale's work completed by Coverdale and others, requiring it to be read and made available to every church in the land, for it was Tyndale's dream that even the plowboy 
would have access to the scriptures. Tyndale's final prayer had been quickly and poignantly answered. Clarity and naturalness are the outstanding hallmarks of Tyndale's work in translation, yet there is so much more. This is a man who coined expressions that are still in everyday use, such as, my brother's keeper, go an extra mile, the apple of his eye, the still small voice. He used contemporary terms like the word for missing an archery target to sin. He also invented a range of terms expressly for this purpose, such as atonement and mercy seat, words that we use regularly when talking about the Christian faith. And a word that he, he coined also is loving kindness, a word that we'll be focusing on much in the, in the message today. In the middle of the book of 2 Samuel, between the rise of David's kingdom and his numerous falls, we have this beautiful picture of the gospel placed in the midst of conquest and bloodshed and disasters. The story shows us a beautiful demonstration of God's loving kindness shown through his king. We will see that the loving kindness that King David showed to Mephibosheth foreshadows and typifies the perfect loving kindness that God shows through his eternal king, our Lord Jesus Christ. First, we notice that this loving kindness is initiated. In verse 1, we read, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, Saul was king over all of Israel, and David eventually succeeded him. And Saul had three sons, Jonathan and Abinadab and Melshua, and they died in battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And Jonathan and David were best friends. Many years earlier, Jonathan understood that God was giving the kingdom to David, and he was wonderfully supportive. He made a covenant with David in which he made David promise and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. We read that in 1 Samuel 20, 15. After things were quiet in his kingdom, David thought about his covenant with Jonathan and wondered if there was anyone of Saul's household to whom he might show kindness. Now, this word that's translated here, kindness, or I've been saying loving kindness, you may have heard this word before talked about in sermons. It's that Hebrew word, hesed, and it's very important. It's used almost 250 times in the Old Testament. Its most common sense is loyal love, and it's used that way 206 times. The sense of loyal love is an unfailing kind of love, kindness or goodness. And it's often used of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. And when used that way, it's usually translated as steadfast love. And that's the same word that Jonathan used when he made David promise not to cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That word used in 1 Samuel 20 is the same word that's used in 2 Samuel 9, 1. 
as translated as kindness. And this kindness has the sense of a kind act. And you'll notice in this message many times I'm going to replace kindness with loving kindness, that word that Tyndale coined. So David wanted to fulfill his covenant promise to Jonathan. And that's why he asked in verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there's a very important lesson here for us. A lesson about keeping our covenant promises. Christians make covenant promises when they join the church. Promises that are unfortunately too often taken lightly. For example, church members promise that they will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. And they promise to support the church in its worship and to work to their best of their ability. But sadly, however Christians view the church as a club, one can participate as much or as little as one likes. Probably the most common covenant promise that we would know of is marriage vows. One man and one woman pledge their faithful love to one another and to no one else. And we know sadly... In our culture and time, this vow is regularly discarded. Judging by the large number of divorces in our culture, but it should not be this way. We need to keep our vows. I recently read the story, a heart-wrenching story, of a seminary president whose wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Over about three years, she declined steadily, and the brother started working as often as possible from home which was located on the campus about half a mile from his office. As she continued to decline, his wife lost more and more of her ability to speak. But the one sentence she remembered was, I love you. And when Dr. Robertson would go to the office, his wife Muriel would often follow him. Because of her love for him, she would make the trip as often as ten times a day, sometimes at night when it helped her to bed. When he helped her to bed, he would find bloody feet. Eventually, the man resigned as the president of the seminary so that he could take full-time care of his wife. He wrote, When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, And someone once asked Robertson if it was hard having to take care of his wife, and he replied, I don't have to take care of her, I get to take care of her. David understood that covenant promises are meant to be kept. And that's why he wanted to make sure that he was keeping his covenant promise to Jonathan when he asked, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, David was told of a servant of Saul's named Ziba. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. 2 Samuel 4.4 tells us, 
Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. One commentator thinks that Mephibosheth was around, 15, was around 20 or 21 years of age at the time that David was looking to fulfill this promise to Jonathan. And the lesson we should emphasize here is that David took the initiative to fulfill his covenant promise to Jonathan. Mephibosheth did not take any initiative. He was utterly unaware of David's thinking and perhaps had never heard of David's covenant with Jonathan. He was living at Lodabar, which means no pasture, or some people have even said that it means nothing. So Mephibosheth was not only dispossessed of his family land, but lived in a barren place where there was no pasture. He was disabled, he was poor, and he was destitute. And Mephibosheth is a vivid description of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is spiritually crippled, poor, and destitute. But the good news of the gospel teaches us that David's greater son, Jesus, takes the initiative to bring kindness, God's steadfast love, to us. In Titus 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Second, this loving kindness is provided. Verses 5 and 6 say, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. In those days when kings ascended to the throne, they killed every possible rival, especially family members of the previous king. That's, that was actually what Jonathan did not want David to do when he ascended to the throne. However, Mephibosheth did not know this. One can imagine how terrified he felt when the king's emissaries brought him to David. He thought that he was about to have his head chopped off like his uncle Ishbosheth. And he was entering the presence of the king only to have his identity confirmed before being killed. And it's there that we read, David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. He had no reason whatsoever to expect any kindness from David. And imagine Mephibosheth's astonishment when David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. 
I think this verse stands at the very center of this story. It's a key verse in the entire drama of this chapter. The words, do not fear, often precede promises in Scripture. The the promises come to people who have reason to be afraid. Mephibosheth had every reason to be afraid, but David quieted his, his fears by saying, for I will show you kindness. The Hebrew here is even stronger. For I will surely show you kindness. How different and superior this loving kindness is from the false gospels taught in the church today. Bodie Balcom recently released his book, Fault Lines, about the social justice movement and the looming catastrophe that it is bringing in evangelical churches. I've been reading through it, and he, he does a really good job of showing how the movement has influenced the growth of an anti-racist religion or cult that has its own body of divinity, its own theology, complete with a cosmology, the critical theory, an original sin, racism. It even has a priesthood and so on. But no soteriology, no theology of salvation. He writes, anti-racism offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to combat an incurable disease. And he goes on to say, the anti-racists have abandoned the gospel since, in their view, there is no good news of grace. There is only law. No loving kindness of God that saves his enemies. Instead, continual retribution upon oppressors and those descended from them. Could you imagine this story of David and Mephibosheth? When Mephibosheth is brought before David, and instead of the loving kindness that we see demonstrated, David instead says, you oppressed my my ancestors and kills him. It would not be the beautiful picture of the gospel that we see here in Scripture. And David's promise to provide kindness to Mephibosheth points us to the promise of Jesus to provide loving kindness to us. Jesus once said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We once were spiritually disabled and poor and destitute, crippled. But God will make us citizens of his kingdom and he will be with us and we will be with him forever. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In verse 4 he picks up, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The lesson for us is that Christians are the recipients of God's unmerited and gracious kindness. We deserve nothing from God but wrath. We were languishing in a spiritual desert in our own Lodabar. But then Jesus found us and saved us, and he showed us his loving kindness. 
And our response to Jesus is the same as Mephibosheth's was to David. Behold, I am your servant. Having been saved by the grace of God, we are now the servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our joy and our privilege to serve him all the days of our life. So loving kindness is initiated and loving kindness is provided. And it is also experienced. Then David called Ziba, Saul's servant, and told him that all that belonged to Saul and his family now belonged to Mephibosheth. Moreover, Ziba's sons and servants were to take care of and farm Mephibosheth's land so that he would always have bread to eat. Furthermore, Mephibosheth would always eat from David's table. Like one of the king's sons. And verse 13 says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always he ate always at the king's table. J.I. Packer wrote, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Now Mephibosheth was not a traitor in the proper sense of the word. But after the death of his grandfather, King Saul, things did not look good for him. He may very well have thought that David viewed him as a traitor. But David initiated toward Mephibosheth this loving kindness, this steadfast love. And then Mephibosheth experienced this. He was adopted, as it were, into David's family. He was given all the privileges of his sons to eat at his table. And even beyond this, this would put him at that time as like an insider in that kingdom, somebody who was in the know. So he was given all the the privileges and benefits of sonship. He was viewed as part of David's family, and he was free to enjoy supper with David all the days of his life. And we know that David experienced God's loving kindness again and again in his life. When he showed that loving kindness to Mephibosheth, he was showing the covenant mercy that had delivered him so many times. In Psalm 33, David recognizes the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, but instead the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. King David pleads at the end of that psalm. David was able to show God's loving kindness to a mortal enemy's grandson because his life was marked by that same mercy. And how humbling that loving kindness must have been for Mephibosheth. Derek Thomas, in a sermon that he did on this text, he says, imagine David's table. He said, you would have had Amnon, David's eldest son, Tamar, who was believed to be extraordinarily beautiful. There was Absalom, of whom it was said that from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet, there was no blemish in him. 
you would have had Joab, a nephew of David's, the captain of the army, a man's man, and then Solomon, the future king, all at this table. And so just imagine Mephibosheth hobbling into that room, into that site, every day for the rest of his life. He must have been daily reminded as he slid his knees up under the king's table that I do not deserve to be here. I don't have any bargaining chips. The king's love stoops to people like me. David loves Mephibosheth not because he's attractive, not because he's good, not because he's productive, not because he's faithful. David loves Mephibosheth because of a covenant. We have a covenant-keeping king who brings in a poor, crippled, broken outsider and gives him a seat at the table. And isn't that what Paul says in Romans 5? That while we were still weak, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us? King Jesus' kindness stoops to people like Mephibosheth and to people like us. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And he went to a remote place to find his crippled, broken enemies and give them a seat at his table. This brings to mind Isaac Watts' old hymn, Sweet and Awful is the Place. Listen to these words. How sweet and awesome is this place with Christ within the doors while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Here every bow of our God with soft compassion rolls. Here peace and pardon bought with blood is food for dying souls. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And at the end of that hymn, he says, May with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. And again, David's actions point us to his greater son, Jesus Christ. We experience the kindness of Jesus when we are the recipients of his grace. We are adopted into his family and we're loved and cared for by the Father. We become co-heirs with Jesus. John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And it is by God's will alone that he shows loving kindness to us in his beloved Son by adopting us as sons and daughters. God's word says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
according to the purpose of his will. And as King David showed God's loving kindness by extending royal privileges to lame Mephibosheth, King Jesus raises up his Mephibosheths and seats them with him in heavenly places. He grants them who conquer the great royal privilege of sitting with him on his glorious throne, Revelation 3.20 tells us. A kingdom of priests to rule and reign with him. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, Christ's crippled Mephibosheths, have received his mercy and his loving kindness if we have trusted in him. The lesson for us is that as we experience the loving kindness of Jesus, when we were adopted into the family of God, before we were on the outside. But once the kindness of God came into our lives, we became adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And he has elevated us to royalty. And that's the highest privilege of the gospel, to be members of God's royal household and to eat at Christ's table continually. As I conclude, I want to read to you Matthew Henry's summary of this story about this parable of salvation, and it rings so truly. Now, because David was a type of Christ, his Lord and Son, his root and offspring, let his kindness to Mephibosheth serve to illustrate the kindness and love of God our Savior towards fallen man, which yet he was under no obligation to, as David was to Jonathan. Man was convicted of rebellion against God and, like Saul's house, under a sentence of rejection from him, was not only brought low and impoverished, but lame and impotent, made so by the fall. The Son of God inquires after this degenerate race and inquired not after him, comes to seek and save them. To those of them that humble themselves before him and commit themselves to him, he restores the forfeited inheritance. He entitles them to a better paradise than that which Adam lost and takes them into communion with himself, sets them with his children at his table and feasts them with the dainties of heaven. Lord, what is man that thou shouldest thus magnify him? And my question as we come to the end here, is have you experienced the loving kindness of God? Have you turned from your sin and and repented? Have you trusted in King Jesus for the salvation of your soul? If you've not done so, may I plead with you now to receive this loving kindness As beautiful and startling as the loving kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth, it came to an end when they died. 
But this loving kindness showed by the King of kings and Lord of lords for his people never ends. It truly is continual and forever. And if you are assured of God's loving kindness for you, let me encourage you to share it with others. You remember in the story how David sent out his servants to find Mephibosheth and Lodabar and bring him before the king to receive God's loving kindness. Our king, the Lord Jesus, sends us out to find other Mephibosheths and to bring them before the royal court to receive God's everlasting mercy. May we be faithful in this and bring all glory and honor to our Lord and blessed King Jesus. Amen.